Hey, you're listening to the teaching portion of the Crossridge Women's Study in the Book of Revelation. This is part two from winter 2023. For more info about us and to access our resources, you can find us at crossridge.church forward slash W study. Okay, so last time we were together, we were in the millennium, remember? You probably remember. Um, after I we went home, I sent this out in an email, but I did do an extra podcast because there were so many questions that we couldn't, that we left on the board. So um, if you listen to that, then you will have walked through chapter 20 um, and the rest of our questions that we had brainstormed last time on the board. Um, but when you get to 21 and 22, I hope that what when you look back then on where we were in the millennium, that just felt so like uh, crazy and what was even going on, that that was such a small part and not the focus at all. Because no matter what and when, I heard someone teaching about the millennium say, no matter what it is and when it is, it ends. There's an ending. And this is what happens after. And this is way more important than, than, those, than whatever that 1,000 years means. Um, any interpretation, I think, that we have that doesn't focus on Jesus misses the mark. It it's, goes astray because John has said, and, and God has spoken through John and said, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a picture, an unveiling of Jesus. So if what we're dwelling on out of the book of Revelation is something that has very little to do with Jesus, um, we've missed the mark. Uh, I... I sat down yesterday and I was like, oh, for so many years I thought Revelation is about the how. And it's actually just about the who, right? John says that from the beginning, and I think we saw that. Um, I, I don't know, how many people think this journey through this book, you know, it's sort of had its ups and downs. Sometimes it's been really hard. Sometimes it's been remarkably sort of straightforward. It's been a little scary and heavy at times, and then it's been like beautiful and worshipful and just really encouraging at times. Um, I hope that you've seen that. Um, and maybe even sometimes painful. There's things in it that are, that are a bit painful we've wrestled with and struggled with, but tonight, what we should leave with is that this journey is worth it when we see what we see in chapters 21 and 22. Um, you know, all the difficulty and the heaviness of final judgment, that's not the end. That's, that's not the end, and it's not the focus, actually. And one thing I am very convinced about is that Revelation is not the end of the story, but I think, and we're going to see this tonight, but, and I hope you would agree, it's, it's the new beginning, right? Things begin again. It is the new beginning. Um, so just as we start, just for a couple minutes, I wanted to throw it out there to you. Um, on question, or question number 16 in your study guide this week, I asked um, this question. How the Revelation's depiction of heaven differs from a modern cultural understanding. But even more than that, I guess, or to simplify it, I just wonder, did anything surprise you about the picture of heaven in the end of Revelation? Was anything different than you thought? Or maybe you learned this a long time ago. You didn't learn it here. But it is but something that's very different than our modern culture's understanding or thoughts about heaven or the end of the world. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anybody else? 
yeah, we don't evacuate heaven, our earth for heaven, right? Instead, heaven invades earth. Heaven comes down. Yeah. I think there's like a lot of talk about like golden streets and like we're gonna dance on the streets or this or that. Just sort of this idea of like I wrote beautiful, yes, but not about beauty in the sense of comfort. Yes. But like, I mean, certainly there was like beautiful depictions of this beautiful place, but it was it's not beautiful in the sense of like my necessarily my enjoyment, but actually right. like. God's glory. So beauty not for the sake of beauty in the way that we think that it serves us. Yeah, it serves something different, God's glory. Uh, that, that might be maybe a modern like Christian cultural understanding, right? The streets of gold. If you look through a hymn book from the time when I was a kid, like how many of those songs right? we used to sing? Pearly gates, streets of gold, yeah. All those serve a purpose. They are not actually the end, are they? Yeah, good. Anything else? Yes. I never thought about that. That's really, really good. That's really good. Yeah. We'll talk more about that. It's that's really important and it's yeah, it's it seems like simple or but maybe also not simple. It's really important, I would say. Yeah, good. Um yeah, Revelation twenty one five says, Look, I am making all things new. And I think sometimes um the the Christian cultural understanding of heaven is that God is making, Daryl Johnson puts it this way, and I think it's really, it, it makes it very clear, the difference, um, that sometimes we think God is making all new things, but he's not. He's making all things new. He is renewing and purifying his very good creation that has been broken by sin. Instead of just discarding it and starting over, um, which is sometimes this thought of this evacuate, we're going to evacuate this earth and just go to somewhere better, right? God is making um, all new things. No, he's actually making all things that are here new. I want to read you this quote. It's from Je George Eldon Ladd, a preacher. And he says, The Bible always places men and women on a redeemed earth, not in a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. God originally made us for earth, and in Jesus... God will fulfill that original intent in a new, renewed earth. The destiny of God's people is not to go to heaven, but for heaven to come down. That's good. Um, here's why I thought this week that this is really good news. Um, our pain in this life, our struggle in this earthly life, uh, it matters. Because this earth, this world, the dirt of this place matters to God. Matter matters to God. Um, that's what he's making new. All things, all things in this here creation. Um, he is going to resurrect life out of all of the brokenness and death on this earth, not just give us something different, but he is going to take even this earth through this path of re resurrection into, into death 
and out into life. We talked about it last week, I think, with Rachel's group, this idea of the fires of purification, you know, the fires of judgment being like fires of purification. Um, he is going to transform and purify this earth. Yeah. And if we were just to evacuate this earth and fly off to heaven and start over, then the real question is, what is all this for? What is all my suffering and my difficulty and all the troubles here for? Why do we have to go through this if we're just going to evacuate to the better place? Um, I worked with a, a teacher. She, um, I think she retired like my first or second year and she had been teaching for a lot of years and she was a good Christian reformed um, lady. And she said to me one time, um, that she, she thinks this life is actually preparing us for eternity. That what we go through now here, in some way, is preparing us for the life to come. And I think the Bible would, and the, especially, I think the New Testament writers would support that. Um, but it's good for us to think about that even our suffering will be renewed. God is even renewing and purifying our suffering and he is transforming it, and it is not wasted. So that's actually a message of hope. In our final gathering together, we used our large group observation time to go through this section of the last few chapters, Revelation 21.1, all the way to chapter 22, verse 5. And we answered the question from our homework, which was number seven. It said, how does the end of the Bible connect to the beginning? How do we see parallels back to the first three chapters of Genesis when we look at this portion of Revelation 21 and 22? And the reason why it's important to see this is because we've said it before, Revelation is culmination literature. It is the culmination of the story that began in the garden. And the reason we can say that confidently is because we know that from this text right here in Revelation. So it's really good to go through and see um, what are the similarities, what are the parallels back to Eden. And we can do that um, largely by looking at what John says is not there when it comes to the new creation, to the new heavens, to the new Jerusalem. And then along with what's not there, what is there? And by doing that, we answered some of the other questions in our homework that just uh, went through what was meaningful in like the structure and the decor and all these these uh, descriptions of the new heavens and new earth. So I thought I would just go um, through that with you here. Um, because you couldn't be a part of us, you couldn't see our board and, and everything we were writing down and pointing to. Sometimes it's just easier to go through it this way um, for the podcast. But I don't want you to miss it because it is the most beautiful thing for me about the entire Bible. That it is one unified story. That it begins in the first pages of Genesis and it is culminated in these final pages in the book of Revelation. We have said it many times that this is not the end of the Bible. It's not the end. It's not the end of the story. It might be the end of the Bible, I guess, but it's not the end of the story, but rather it is the beginning. It is the, the new beginning. Let's have a look. Question number seven. How does the end of the Bible connect? Let's look at specific observations that we made. And it starts right away in the first verse of chapter 21. 
John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So it sounds a lot like Genesis 1-1, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. That's the sea. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So in those first two chapters of Genesis, we get this picture of God uh, hovering over an earth that is formless and void. It is not the beautiful creation that we're used to. And at that time, he's hovering over this void um, creation. It's formless and empty. But there's a picture that Moses was given by God when he wrote the pages of Genesis, that God was hovering over this deep abyss this formless and empty darkness, this representation of chaos. And in the Hebrew imagination, it is the opposite of creation. God hovers over this dark abyss, and out of it, he brings order and creation. You know, um, in the Hebrew imagination, their um, biggest context for what is these, the surface of the watery depths of chaos was the sea. They didn't have the technology that we have. They probably couldn't even snorkel like we we can or scuba dive or whatever to, to see what actually was under the surface of the deep. It was the great unknown for them. And not only that, um, it, it was dangerous. It was a dangerous place to be out on the sea. And they did not see it like we do as the vacation destination. They saw it as chaos. And so the sea throughout the Old Testament story became a picture of, of chaos because they had that link back to Genesis 1 and the dark, formless abyss that the face of God hovered over and representing this chaos out of which he brought order. Uh, writer Sky Jatani says this, when we reach the final chapters of the Bible, we discover familiar imagery that echoes back to the opening chapters of Genesis. This is deliberate and it cements the link between the Hebrew vision of creation and the Christian vision of redemption. The first symbolic link here is the sea. Um, so when we see in the New Jerusalem that there is no sea there, we don't need to to get sad because you know we love going to the beach but we have to understand that what what John is saying is that there is no more chaos and there is no more disorder there is no more disorder and what is the disorder it is sin and chaos um, instead there is a different water and to see this you actually have to flip to the end of this section because John starts by saying there is no sea but what is there is the river of the water of life so the source of life is there and it's represented not by a big deep watery sea but but the source a river flowing from the throne fresh and good and satisfying um the other thing we also see when we when we see that the there's no sea there that there's no chaos that instead it's a beautiful holy city this new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared like a bride adorned for her husband there is a new creation 
instead of chaos. Just like there was chaos and then creation in Genesis 1 here, there was there is no more sea, the chaos is gone, and in, in its place is this new creation, new city coming down out of heaven. And it's described how as a bride and beautiful, uh, very good, you could say. It is a picture of new life. And what we what we recognize here about Eden is there is a sense of order and creation that God's intended design is fulfilled in this garden city. Okay, if we keep going, we read in verse four that the next thing that is not there in the new creation is no tears, grief, death, or pain. And instead, what is there is the tree of life, uh, something that was present back in the Garden of Eden. So we don't have to look hard to see how this connects us back to Genesis, do we? Um, when we hear this, these, these words, tears, grief, death, and pain, the reader thinking back to Genesis can remember the curse, right? Adam was going to work the ground and toil by the sweat of his brow. Eve was going to be experiencing the pain of childbirth because of sin. The curse um, comes on Adam and Eve. And then uh, what, when they leave the garden, uh, when they have to leave in Genesis 3.24, God actually says that because sin has come, because the curse has come on them, I must now close off the gate to Eden. Their access has to be blocked to the tree of life, lest they take and eat and live forever in this state. He can't have that. So he has to send them out, and then the access to that tree of life is blocked. Well, here in the new city, the tree of life is there. Access is no longer blocked. It is open, and the curse, tears, grief, death, and pain, sin, is gone. In fact, now what does it say about the tree of life? It says that the leaves are for healing. What were the leaves in the garden for in Genesis? Do you remember? Well, they were used for covering the shame and sin of Adam and Eve after they took the fruit and ate. But now they are for the healing of the nations. It is healing the shame and the curse of sin. It is a picture of salvation for all people. It also says of that tree of life that it bears its fruit each month. It's a picture of abundance, right? Where there was toil out of the ground in Eden now, it is like bearing fruit each month. What kind of tree even does that in our imagination? And it also says that it is on both sides of the river, which can be confusing, but also I think it goes along with that theme of access. It is easily accessed. The access is no longer blocked to it. Um, but I think also in terms of when you think of the other side of the river in the biblical story, it reminds me of the Jordan River and how God's people uh, were on one side of the Jordan River and anything on the other side of the Jordan, like beyond the Jordan, um, you know, that represented to them for a while the promised land, but then also it represented like enemies, like the other side. And I think that repeatedly we get this sense that the new creation is for all people all nations. We're going to see it come again. The next thing we see that is not there is no temple. There is no temple in this new city. Instead, the Lamb and God 
is the temple. The throne of God and the Lamb is there, but there is no need for a temple. And the really strange thing about this is that we read that in verse 22, but verses 10 to 21 are all about what? Jewels, walls, gates, foundation, building materials. It's just describing all this temple language to us for 10 or 11 verses. And we're used to this. We've heard this before in Exodus, like the measurements and the walls and the building materials and all the jewels and the beauty. Yes, we've heard this before. It's the temple. And then verse 22 says, but there's no temple. There is no temple needed because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. So when we think about this um, Old Testament, the temple, this kind of language, we have to think that the temple represented three things. There was this idea of form, its form, its function, and its foundation. So its form was, was telling a story of beauty and abundance uh, and order, order of creation, right? And its function was that it was a tent of meeting. And the function was all about access. How does humanity access God? Who can access? And what do you have to do to access relationship with God? That was its function. And the foundation of it was that it was truth-telling. It was all about truth-telling. All the form and function and everything are based on this foundation that it is going to display the character of God, the truth about God, every little thing about the temple told something true about this, the nature of God, sin, man, and salvation, right? If you've ever studied the temple, you know that you can look at every single element and you can see um, its place in the redemption story and you can see how Jesus actually fulfills it. That's why Jesus has fulfilled the function of the temple. And what's left actually is the beauty and the abundance of it. That's what we see. And the truth of God is on display. The glory of God, everything about God is seen. But the function, the access, it's no longer needed because Jesus has fulfilled that. Uh, the other interesting thing when we hear about no temples and all these measurements is that they're not really measurements, are they? They are symbolic. So John is pushing language to its limits just to attempt to describe it, you know, but it can't be literal because it doesn't even make sense. And sometimes, you know what, in our humanity, we try to make it make sense. In the bottom of your Bible, in your notes, you might see uh, there's a note after 12,000 stadia and you look down, okay, that's 1,400 miles. John didn't need us to know what 12,000 stadia was. He just needed us to know and think about the number 12,000. 12, representative of the tribes, the apostles, the people of God, times a thousand, a very great number, a very great number of the people of God represented. Again, 144 cubits. It doesn't matter that it's cubits, but the number 144, what does that describe to us? 12 times 12. All the people of God can fit in this temple space. It is not divided into courts or there's access issues. Remember, we said that is gone. Um, the, the real thing that we see is that its height and its breadth and its width is all what? The same. It's not just a square. It's a cube. 
And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the Holy of Holies, the most inmost place of the temple where God's Spirit dwelled, um, that was also measured out and built to be a perfect cube. The Holy of Holies. That is where the presence of God rested. Very simply, what is John saying? John is saying the entire new creation, this entire new city is the Holy of Holies because God's Spirit invades all of it. His presence is there with His people. It is the fulfillment of access, beauty, and abundance of the truth of God and His glory. Okay, let's keep going. It does say that there's no sun, moon um, next, but let's skip over that because it also repeats it again. So let's move on to here where it says there is no night. There is no night. We think about when we think about that, we understand this idea of of darkness and threat, uh, the threat of enemies. Um, and in the cities at night, they would close the gates, right, to keep out the enemy. But what does it say about the New Jerusalem? Um, the gates never close because there is no night. So there is no threat of enemy. And that's because there are no enemies, I would tell you. Um, and there's a couple things that, that show us that. First of all, it says that the kings are going to bring in the wealth of nations. And kings here in, in Revelation, when it talks about that in this particular place, it's just representing culture, right? Another nation and its culture. And it's saying this beauty and wealth of these, all these cultures are coming in. This is not a hard message for us, but it's a hard message for the first century Jews. But it's this, all nations, all peoples of the entire world will be in the new Jerusalem, in the new um, Garden of Eden, in, in heaven, or whatever you want to call it. And this is actually just a fulfillment of the covenant to Abram. You know, the Jews couldn't hear it. They thought they were the special people of God. They would never imagine that the Gentiles might be led into this city. Uh, but Abram heard it right in the beginning, didn't he? God said that, that you will be my people and that you will take uh, my blessing to all nations. All nations was God's heart right from the beginning. So this fulfills the covenant. And that's why we see there's, there's 12 gates. There's all the tribes of Israel. All the people get to come in. The story of God, his promises to Israel and this family are how you get in to the city. But who's coming in? All the kings of all nations, bringing the beauty of all cultures. Yeah. The next thing that that is not there, nothing unclean will ever enter. Um, this reminds us of Eden because uh, something unclean did enter the garden. And when we think about unclean, sometimes it says evil in some in some Bibles, but the translation really should say nothing nothing unclean, and it's talking about sin and the curse. Somehow. The sin and the curse did come into the first garden, didn't it? Uh, it came through the serpent, uh, tempting Eve with these questions of, will she really trust God? Is God really who he says he is? Or should she just make her own path of life? Something unclean entered the garden. But here, even though the gates are open, nothing unclean will ever enter. 
There will be no sin, no curse. It will not be here. Uh, it leads us to the last thing. We sort of mentioned it before, but it repeats it. it, says it again, no sun, no moon, no lamp. Uh, because the lamb is the lamp, right? The light of the lamb is what uh, illuminates this entire city. And how this uh, points us back to Genesis is that what was the first thing God created? Let there be light. Light is primary in creation. We cannot see apart from light. I read somewhere, some, someone said, light is foundational, but incomprehensible. It is bamboozling, but it is obvious. God hovers over the face of the darkness, the chaos waters, the abyss, and light is the answer to chaos. Illumination is the answer to chaos. The truth of God's character is the answer to chaos. So God creates the sun and the moon. And in Genesis, it says that they serve as signs for seasons, days, and years. And they do that. Like till this day, they are doing that. The changing of seasons is dependent on them. The new day is dependent on them. Every morning, the sun comes up and then every night it sets. It does not fail. If anything, in all of creation, they are a symbol of the primacy and the unchanging faithfulness of God, are they not? The rest of creation, there's changes, there's wanes, there's growing, there's living, there's dying, there's crumbling, but not the sun and the moon. Now look here. In the end of Revelation in this new city, the primary, most established, unchanging element of creation is unnecessary. It's unnecessary. There is no sun or moon or lamp because their lamp is the lamb. God is the light himself. The light of the world has come and his glory, the truth of who he is, is all the light that is needed. It illuminates everything. And guess what? In that light, what does it say the people see? The face of God. The face of God. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, God dwelling with man is the whole goal of the biblical story. Uh, it's not about, you know, preventing you from sinning or you avoiding hell. Uh, or me just ticking all the right boxes and having a better life because God's not angry at me. That's not what Christianity is about. It is not about enjoying a mansion or escaping this earth. It is about being in the presence of God, both now and forever in a life to come, of which, you know what, as we experience now, is, is only. After we went through um, these parallels, it was just really uh, striking to us, just the faithfulness of God uh, to carry out his plan that began in the garden and ends in um, the, the new creation, the new garden. And we could see God as beginning and end, first and last, alpha and omega, you know, that all those uh, repetitions of phrases, it's not just saying the same thing, but 
in the fact that God is the beginning and end. It's not just the first and last of a series like Alpha and Omega are, the first and last of the series of Alphabet, but the beginning is actually the source. The source of the series out of which all the rest flows towards the end, which is also the purpose, the design, right? The destiny almost of it. The Greek word is telos. The reason God can be the omega, the end, the purpose of all things is because he is the beginning, the origin, the source. And here in Revelation, this is the culmination of Eden. This is where it has been headed for the entire Bible. And it is, it's beautiful to see it here. So we took the rest of our small group time actually just to worship God and to pray out of revelation because of it. We, we answered the question, what does this, these chapters say about God? And how does that lead us to praise him? For what do we need to, um, what are we confessing to him in light of what we have seen is true about him in revelation? In what ways are we lamenting or mourning uh, what are the things that, as we read Revelation, what is on our heart that's heavy that we just need to mourn and cry out to God for? What are we thankful for? How does Revelation move us to thanksgiving as we pray and respond to God? And then finally, what's our supplication? As we come out of the study of Revelation, what do we need to ask God to do in us? What do we need to ask Him for? And then we just spent time uh, doing a prayer exercise where we just sort of wrote and brainstormed all these things down. And then we shared our posters with each other uh, before we wrapped up the end of um, this book of Revelation in our study. Uh, What you'll hear next is just sort of our final comments just to tie everything together. Thanks for being with us um, in this study. Walked into the office, Rebecca was wearing this beautiful bright pink sweater and she said this is revelation my revelation celebration sweater or at least I'm trying to make it and she said something that stuck with me for the rest of the day she said it was the brightest thing I could find and you know after we went I was thinking about this afterwards but do you remember in the very beginning when we were studying in the first few um, chapters and we said um, what is your impression of heaven and a lot of people said loud Remember, because all the singing and shouting, like, and all the people were like, it must be so loud with all those multitudes that no one can even count. And they are just singing and shouting all the time. And there's these loud voices and everything. And when you get to the end, I think it's super bright, isn't it? Like, it's like you can hardly even see. So I went home and I was like, okay, I have to rise to this, the brightness of Revelation challenge. And if you know anything about me, you know I could not go into my own closet to find this. Because in the words of Amy, my closet is, I mean, she would just say that. Not that she said it, but something like, Amy would call it like woefully beige or something like that. Because Amy's so good at color and and things like that. But anyway, and, and you know, just so that you don't think that, I'm I'm just like super stylish. I have always loved non-color and beige. And I remember in my very first teaching class, my very first class that I taught, it was 1998, 1998, 99 or 2000, I think, 99, 2000. And the kids asked me what my favorite color was. And I said, camel. 
And they said, no, not your favorite animal. They were kindergarten. Your favorite color. I was like, camel is my favorite color. Now you might be stylish to say your favorite color is camel, but not in 1999. So. Anyway, it's bright, isn't it? It is bright, and it's beautiful, and it's, it's abundant. Um, there's so much that I wish we could talk about. I wish we could just sit and... And um, I'm going to, I always take these home and then after a few days, because I need a break, <laughs> then I pull it out. And I just love to read it. The other day I was actually reading the Jonah papers. I still had them, which that was like years ago. I don't even remember how long ago that was. So um, it's, it is, it's, it's a form of worship. And it is a form of prayer. Um, it's a good way to, to write it down and to just press into that as... As prayer, So I hope that you will sort of take that um, and as you go to bed tonight that your last thing that you do will spend some time praying out of Revelation what you heard around your table and spend some time with the Lord just in worship and confession and lament and supplication and thanksgiving over um, all he has revealed to us in this unveiling, this apocalypse. Okay, here's what we need to do. There's, um, we need to talk about the prologue which is the very, very last section, which is um, different, right? We've been, the whole way from 21.1 to 22.5, we've been sort of talking about this new Jerusalem and the new creation, and then there's this section at the end that you're like, okay, we're not talking about that anymore, we're doing something different, and it's called the prologue. And it actually, you lined it up right next to your, um, right next to the introduction in your homework. You went through and looked at what are the similarities there. And it's intentionally similar. It's part of the structure that gives meaning in apocalyptic literature, that John is reiterating his purpose and the blessing that comes from reading this and from seeing this vision and the promises of God that are going to be fulfilled. All the things he said in his introduction, he repeats in his prologue. Um, but there's a couple things in there that might be sticky, and if I had, if I was going to send you another email next week, I'd, I'd maybe just spell it out, but I just wanted to say a couple things about it right now. First of all, I think probably, and you can tell me if there's something else confusing, but one of the most difficult parts is this verse, um, verse 10, that says this, Then he said to me, Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. Did anybody find that confusing? Yeah, yeah, it's not super clear, is it? And we actually, things have been pretty clear, really bright, but pretty, pretty clear so far. And then that is maybe a little, um, a little strange. So what we should know is that um, that is a direct reference to Daniel 12. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if, that, if I got that into your cross-references, but the very end of the book of Daniel, I'm just going to read it to you. I'm going to read verse 4 of Daniel 12, and then verse 9 and 10. It says this, But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Many will roam about and knowledge will increase. Remember this vision that Daniel had in the book of Daniel? <laughs> Sorry is, um, I'm losing it, you guys. <laughs> I've made it. I've made it since September, now I'm losing it. Um, it was a vision of the messianic kingdom. 
right? The better kingdom that was going to come. This is what the whole book of Daniel was talking about. Okay, so he says, seal up these books, uh, keep them secret. Verse 9, he said, go on your way, Daniel, for the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. So what we're supposed to understand from John's strange words here in verse 10 is we're supposed to, the reader is supposed to think back and see the connection to, to Daniel 12. Daniel 12 was a prophecy that this kingdom was going to come. And it said, seal up the words of this prophecy. Because why? It's not for now. The kingdom's not here. It will come. That was the message to Daniel. But here in John, it says, don't seal it up. Why? Because the kingdom has come. Right? The kingdom is here. The kingdom came with Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So the second part of that is Daniel is prophesying a response to the message. And what did he say? That some will be wicked, some will choose righteousness, some will have understanding and insight. Um, and here in John, because it's not prophesying forward anymore, it's happening John says it as a command, okay? So John's not saying, he's not talking about people being wicked or not wicked. The point, this is, I know this is really tricky, but this is apocalyptic language. The form is the most important thing. So because it's a command, it means it is now. It isn't something for the future. Daniel was saying, people are going to respond in different ways. The wicked will be wicked. The righteous will be righteous. Those with insight will have understanding. But what John is saying is, the kingdom is now. So let the wicked be wicked. The righteous be righteous. There will be a variety of different responses to this message of the kingdom. But make no mistake, the kingdom is here. We don't need to seal it up or, or hide it away because the kingdom is now. Does that make sense? So the OR, the original reader, was just supposed to say, hey, we're living. This has started. This messianic kingdom has started. That's what that means. Okay. Um, I was just thinking about what's, what's our big takeaway? What's our big application? Why should we care? Like, we just read the book of Revelation, and, like, what do we walk away with? And I hope you walk away with a lot. Like, I hope there's a lot of things. Implications for... Um, yeah, understanding like who, who Jesus is, the whole plan of salvation, understanding, I think there's a lot to be said, understanding worship and thinking about what worship is and how we worship. There's a lot of things. Um, but I was going back to the, the very beginning and, and when John is writing to the seven churches. And we talked about this idea that John was writing to believers who were being seduced, persecuted, and deceived. And that's what came up over and over again in the letters to them. This, these were their big problems. They were being seduced to love the pleasures and the intoxication and the immorality of Babylon, for them, Rome, right? Their culture. They were influenced um, towards relationship and intimacy with Rome and all of its trappings, all that it could offer through its politics and power and position and economics and all that sort of thing. Um, but it's also for us, isn't it? Because we deal with that same thing. We've talked about it. We have Babylon now. 
Um, we can look at this and say that our culture is telling us that the most important thing and the thing that, thing that you should love the most is pleasure and money and possessions and power and politics and fame, that that's the way to flourishing. Um, John was writing to believers who were persecuted. Now, they were being persecuted, why? Because they worshipped Jesus as king instead of Caesar. Um, they were losing their jobs over it. They were facing economic ruin. Their position and power in their community was at risk. Their life was at risk. They could die um, for who they worship because they worship Jesus instead of Caesar. Now, for us, we do not face that kind of persecution. We have brothers and sisters around the world that do. But for us, that's not what persecution looks like. And yet, we do experience the pressure... Um, to worship something other than Jesus. Our culture wants us to do that. It's, it goes along with what we just said. It's seducing us. Um, it's part of the same thing. There's pressure to, to give most of our time to Babylon, to value what Babylon and our culture values the most, to redefine what's worthy by the standards of the world around us instead of God's standards and God's heart and what God values. And John wrote to people who were being deceived. And they were being deceived about what was true and real. Basically, they were being told Caesar is king, right? And then all these other things, that they had to please the gods to have a good life or the way to flourishing. Um, that it's the trappings of Babylon, like power, position, the military might, the political power, that those were the things that would get them happiness or, or flourishing, the good life. And, and for us, we hear these same deceptive narratives, that we are the center of the universe, that life is about us, that what we need is inside of us. We just have to connect with it, right? We can make all of our own decisions about what is right, about what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, even, even decisions about our own identity. We get to do that. Right? That's what our culture says. We're, we are deceived into thinking that that is what truth is. So we too are people who um, are at risk of seduction, persecution, and deception. And what John knew is that the answer to what these, this reader was struggling with um, was the answer was what he wrote um, I think it's chapter 12 and 13 and then elsewhere. Remember, he says, this calls for faithfulness. This calls for endurance. This calls for wisdom. So um, I, I've started to think about faithfulness in terms of fidelity because I think faithfulness has lost its meaning a little bit for me. It's a bit too churchy or something, and it, it wasn't really getting, I wasn't getting to the heart of it, and I started thinking about it as fidelity, because it's actually, if you look at what the word is that's being used here, it's, it is fidelity, that's the same word. Um, and so John knew, and actually Jesus knew, that what these people needed was a vision of, they needed fidelity, endurance, and wisdom. Um, so a call to fidelity in the face of seduction just says to us and to the reader, to know and love Jesus more than Babylon. That's what we're called to do, to order and reorder our priorities, to press into intimacy. We talk a lot about knowing God is different than knowing about God. There's a difference there. You can know a lot about God, but you cannot know God. 
the message through the Bible is the same. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay? Pressing into intimacy. Fidelity. And I think I, I like to use that word because Revelation talks about it in terms of marriage. Like, like a marriage. Like that kind of close intimacy, covenant relationship with God is the answer to seduction. And a call to endurance in the face of persecution. Uh, Revelation says, keep following Jesus. I think it also says very clear, it's not easy. Right? Yeah, it did say, it is not going to be easy. It is costly, in fact. Um, it involves sacrifice. It's not just um, easy believism that we can be at risk of. Um, some, in some Christian circles. We have to endure, which that word in the Greek means, we, when we studied James, we saw that it means to stay under. Imagine that you're holding up like a huge weight. To endure is to stay underneath it. It's tiring. It requires what? Love the Lord your God with all your strength. And actually with all your soul, which is like your will. Because to stay up underneath, you have to tell yourself that you are not going to drop it, right? That you are not going to let go. John says, don't give up. It's worth it. Um, and while the answer to, I think, what, what Christianity has to bring us, to form us in fidelity, in fidelity is things like prayer and being in the presence of God and pressing into relationship, you know, learning more about him through studying the Bible, um, what, what Christianity or the church body offers us for endurance is actually the church body. Yeah. Because we join church and then we stand together with other people and they say, yeah, you're holding that, I'm going to hold that too. We're all holding it together. We'll stand beside each other and, you know, when your arms get weak, we're going to even hold up your arms. Um, and we are going to bear up together. And when we are, you are suffering, we are going to come and say, there is hope on the other side of this. That our suffering is not wasted. That there is something beautiful for the, on the other side. That there is something better that we are hoping for. And suffering is not the worst thing in the world, right? And that there's an answer to that even in the midst of it. And that is the presence and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Um, so, like I said, love the Lord our God with all of our strength and all of our soul. Uh, and so a call to wisdom in the face of deception. Uh, Revelation says the whole time, what has John said? Look at Jesus. Look at him. See Jesus. See what is true and real. And see behind the curtain. Because you actually can't see him if you're just looking around here in the temporal. We need, we need spiritual sight, which comes only by a working of the Holy Spirit in us to, to take the, the, the scales off of our eyes so that we can see. Um, you know, Jen Wilkin, she, she has this really good phrase, and she says, we become what we behold. The more we stare intensely and intently at Jesus, at who Jesus is, his character, his worth, and his work in the scriptures, I think he is, by his spirit, um, remaking us into his image. There is a proverb that says there is a way that seems right to a man and in the end it leads to death 
Yeah, we are easily deceived. Um, there's a lot of ways that to us that seem like, yeah, that could be right. But in the end, it leads to death. And I think wisdom, biblical wisdom, not just information, like our world, our culture has a lot of information to give, right? We can get information anywhere. But biblical wisdom says, says that there is a way that seems like death in the here and now, but it leads to life. Yeah, it flips it on its head. We need to see Jesus. That is the wisdom of God is revealed to us in, in the personhood of Jesus. And so we need the scriptures. That's what we need. We need to know the story of God um, because the truth of, of his heart comes through the person of Jesus loud and clear in the scriptures. Yeah. Uh, last thing. There was two questions that... No, there was one question that was... Um, left on the board. I didn't even talk about it last week. But it was something like this. What should we fear? Or what kind of fear should we have? Um, when it, After studying Revelation or when it comes to Revelation, I didn't really, I wasn't sure what to do with that question. But I think what I came to realize this week when I was thinking about that question is that um, you know, the book of Revelation is not a, I told you that all the bad stuff's going to happen. That's not what it is, right? It's an unveiling of a beauty and purpose and real life. And so I would say that my answer to that, and you probably have a better one, but mine is that we should fear life apart from the presence of God. Because that's what we're made for. We should fear fruitless Christianity or religion apart from relationship, however you want to say it. Um, we should fear life apart from the presence of God, but we should not fear the future, right? Because we know, we know who holds it, and we know who wins. That's very clear in Revelation. And when we started out this study, someone was saying, it's really important. I heard someone say this. I don't even know if, if they're from our churches, just like someone else I was talking to. Yep, we need to study Revelation because we have to get ready for Jesus coming. And they were talking about this almost in the terms of like, you know, being an apocalypse prepper. Do you know what I mean? Like you got to see the signs, you got to read the newspaper, and then you got to know like who's the beast and what's the mark of the beast, and are you getting that? Are you taking that accidentally without even realizing it? You got the mark of the beast. Like you have to know so that you can be ready when Jesus comes back, that you haven't like really messed things up. Um, and I think John has a couple answers, and then I have an answer to that. And John's answer in the prologue is better. He says. Here's, here's how you get ready. Here's how you get ready for um, revelation. I think he learns this. Don't worship the message. Right? After all this, what does John do? Oh, he worships the angel again. <laughs> right? He's just a man. He's, he's just a man. He is a witness. He is a faithful apostle, but he's just a man. And he worships the message. And the angel says, don't worship the message. Worship Jesus. I think sometimes we worship the message of Revelation when we get tied up in some of these little details that don't matter. 
Yeah. Or when we think of it in terms of like, remember I talked to you last week about the girl who's like, yes, at the end I get to wear a crown, I get to sit on a throne, I get to reign, right? When we think about that or term, in terms of like, oh, that's when the bad guys are going to finally get it, right? That's worshiping the message. That's not worshiping Jesus. Um, and then also I think it, we should think about, um, John says, don't add or take away from the message, right? That's how we get ready. To, to be with Jesus. Don't add or take away from this message. Hold the line. Like, what is the message? What is the truth of this vision of Jesus, of who he is and what he's done? Um, adding to the message, you know, a bunch of timelines or a bunch of things like that, or taking away from the message even, like saying, oh, that doesn't matter, and this doesn't matter, and like, eh, it all pans out in the end. So, you know, like, it doesn't really matter how you act or whatever pan-millennialism, right? No. Um, adding and taking away from the message, I think John would say that is, that is the opposite of hearing and keeping, isn't it? It's the opposite of hearing and keeping. And John the whole way through has said, hear this message. Keep this message. And finally, I would say to you, and this is just my challenge as you walk out the door, we get ready for Jesus. We get ready for being with Jesus someday in the future. By being with Jesus right now, today. Yeah. We spend time in his presence. We get to know him. We experience life in the presence of God. What it means to dwell with the Holy Spirit now. Uh, I, I try to tell my kids this. I did not understand this until I was 34 years old. But I always thought eternal life happened after I die. But I actually wasn't thinking about something eternal. I was still thinking of something with a finite beginning, which actually, going back to geometry, that's a ray, that's not a line, right? A line has no beginning and no end. Um, and eternal life, if that starts after you die, that's not eternal, right? Eternity. So that eternity can start now if you know Jesus, if you trust him as your Lord and Savior, and you are filled with his spirit, his spirit is living in you. You have eternal life in the here and now. It is a shadow of what we will someday experience, isn't it? It is not as bright. Not this. Like dusty rose, maybe. Right? <laughs> not bright pink. It is a shadow. But there is some sense of eternal life in the here and now. Thanks be to God for his Holy Spirit that does that in us. Hey, thanks for studying along. And wherever you are, it's our prayer that as you seek to read and hear and keep this message of the book of Revelation, that you too will experience the blessing that comes from being among those who choose to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Grace and peace. We'll see you again soon.